Well, whether you're a guest this morning, or whether you're a member here, or whether you've been attending here regularly but are not yet a member, you all have one thing in common, which is despite all the odds, you are willing to walk into a building this morning that advertises on its sign the word Baptist. There was uh, some time ago, maybe 10 plus years ago, in which the Southern Baptist Convention, one of our uh, many little organizations, actually did a study on visitors being willing to attend a church. And in that study, they found that having the word Baptist on your sign or in your church's name actually made it less likely, sometimes depending on the age of the people, significantly less likely that they'd be willing to even visit your church once. This led, of course, to many Baptist churches as they're trying to rebuild and rebrand to change their name. It, it caused many new churches to just decide not to put a Baptist on their sign, even if they were convictionally Baptist, even if they were affiliated with a denomination like the Southern Baptist. Uh, I remember one comedian about 10 years ago, and this isn't entirely true anymore, but at the time he said that a non-denominational church is just a Southern Baptist church with a cool website. I think there may be some truth to that. Now, it may not be surprising if you know me very well or if you've heard me preach very often that I actually think it's a good thing that our church, despite the fact that it hurts how many people are willing to visit us for the first time, perhaps, I think it's a good thing that we put Baptist in our name and on our sign. Why? Because truth in advertising. The reality is we could put whatever we want on that sign, but the people in this room, we're still going to be convictionally Baptist. We're going to still practice typical Baptist things overall. Now, that doesn't mean we want to be more Baptist than we are Christian or more Baptist than we are biblical. And in fact, if those things seem to be in conflict, I think we should throw out whatever it is, regardless of whether the label says Baptist or anything else. But the point still stands that in reality, we're Baptists, so why not just be okay letting people know that? And this isn't just a Baptist problem. This is a Presbyterian problem, a Methodist. If you have a church sign that has any kind of denominational affiliation, your chances of getting visitors is hurt by that, especially younger people, uh, because we are in uh, kind of a transitionary period where we kind of almost become post-denominational. I think things are kind of changing where maybe that's not going to be the case for very much longer. But with that being said, the reason we're Baptist is, among many other things, because of our views on baptism. And here's what I want to do this morning as we look at the baptism of Jesus. I don't really want to talk about our views on baptism. Uh, we could talk about who should be baptized, a, an infant or a believer. We could talk about when they should be baptized, how they should be baptized, by immersion or by sprinkling or by pouring something over their head one time, three times. You could talk about all of that. But you know what we all have in common, no matter what church group you're a part of. We see the origin of Christian baptism in the baptism of Jesus by John. And we see essential to baptism the identity of the triune God, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why, as we saw last week with the baptism happening here, that we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you don't have to be Baptist to find that. You can find that in any true church. They're going to baptize in the name of the triune God as commanded by Jesus himself. So as we look to Jesus' baptism, we will see that John was baptizing others 
for repentance. But Jesus was baptized by him for righteousness and revelation. That although John was baptizing for repentance, Jesus was baptized by him for righteousness and revelation. So we go to this guy named John the Baptist. Now, his name wasn't John the Baptist as if his parents said, the is a good middle name and Baptist is a great last name. Keep it in the family. No, it was just a title he had. In fact, maybe a better translation would be John the Baptizer. Although, you know, maybe, maybe he was a Southern Baptist. I don't know. I don't think he was in the southern part of Israel, though, so maybe not. But John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, John was an interesting figure. We could go on and on about John, I think. Wore camel hair, ate honey, wild honey and locust. I mean, just an odd figure, really. Um, and there's reasons, I think, for all of those oddities. They're, they're rooted in who he is, that he is a prophetic figure. He's the first prophet of, for uh, the Jewish people in over 400 years at this point. He was in the tradition of those Old Testament prophets. He, he looked similar to some of them. He did similar things to some of them. But as we look at John, we see that fundamentally the ministry of John was what, he, what is said in verse 3. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Fundamentally, the, the calling of John was to prepare the way for the Lord. To prepare the way specifically for Jesus. Because the two elements of John's preaching were the command, repent, and the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in both of those things, he was preparing the way for Jesus. Preparing the way and pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, as he preaches this, a few things are worth noting. In his preaching, again, we see this message of John, repent. I've maybe said this before, we don't really like the word repent. Uh, some of us, it conjures up uh, some memories of old tent revivals in which we saw many of our high school friends walk down an aisle, and we haven't seen them in church ever since. For some of us, it conjures up billboards, that the only thing on the billboard is a giant word that says repent. And you're thinking, okay, that's great, but repent from what and to what? It doesn't get a whole lot of content there. If you're not a Christian, you have no clue what they're saying. And in fact, even if you're a Christian, you might not know what they're trying to say. They may have some other agenda going on. We don't really like this word repent. Really, the word repent, in my mind, has always conjured up those images, but it also conjures up this meaning, that we need to get our life together so that God will care about us. That we need to clean up our room so that God can come and enter in. So that we need to get our life together and make it good so that God can love us and dwell within us and save us. Man, does that get it backwards, though. In every place in Scripture, repentance is not about saying, I'm going to get my life in order so that God can come in. Repentance is saying, my life is not in order, therefore I need God to come in. God comes in and does the work to help us clean up our lives and get ourselves together but if we start with, I need to get things right before God comes in, we're never going to get anywhere. And never get anywhere. And maybe you've seen this. There are some people who repent but don't have faith. 
Maybe you know some people like this. They feel sorry. They feel bad. They want their life to be better. It never gets there. Now, some people have faith without repentance. They say, oh, I love Jesus. He saved me of my sin, but they don't live any differently because of it. We have to hold the two together, repent and faith, repentance and faith, repent and trust. We have to turn away from a life of sin and turn toward God in Christ. Really, this word repent comes from a Greek word, metanoia, which means change your mind. Really, it's about a whole life change. That instead of just making a decision, we actually make a dedication. That instead of just becoming a convert, we become a disciple, one who follows Jesus for the rest of our lives. So, G- so John is preaching this message of repentance, but it's not a clean up your life. Instead, it's a confess your sins to God and receive him, receive his forgiveness. Another part of his message is this, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see that in verse 2. Now, the the phrase kingdom of heaven is the, the same phrase, really, that you see in other gospels where it says kingdom of God. Matthew chooses to say kingdom of heaven Almost like heaven is like a fill-in word for God, out of respect for God. We're not going to use his name. Uh, Because Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish when he originally wrote this gospel, it seems that he's just trying to be sensitive to them and use the phrase kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God. And in some places in scripture, Jesus refers to this kingdom not as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, but just as the kingdom. And we're supposed to fill in the rest. Well, he's preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he really means by that isn't, is, is, is more than some location or some palace or something like, or a throne appearing. See, that word kingdom is interesting to me because in the original language, it's a noun, but it can also be a verb. But we don't use the verb kingdom very often. In fact, there's not a verb in English for kingdom. Instead, we might say rule or reign that God is exerting his kingdom influence. When the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we realize that God is coming to rule and reign in a unique way, in a special way that he had not before in the history of the world. So when John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, fundamentally what he's saying is the king is coming. The king is arriving. Jesus is on the scene. And so those are the two basic parts of John's message. Repent, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those always go together. Now, he's, he's out here in the wilderness. He's preaching all this stuff. People are coming around, flocking to hear him preach. Coming to be baptized by him. as put into the water as kind of a, a rite or a ritual. And all of a sudden, it says, some Pharisees and Sadducees, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, came to his baptism. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees did not like each other, and it doesn't clearly say that they came together, just that representatives of each group came, but these were like, these weren't really denominations, okay? It's not like the Church of Christ and the Baptists showed up or anything like that. They were really more like political parties in Israel. Yes, there was religion attached to it. They had religious beliefs, and they practiced certain religious teachings, but it was almost like a political faction more than a church or denomination kind of group that we picture today. Now, the Pharisees were probably more what you imagine 
uh, the Jewish people to be like. If you just imagine them based on the preaching you've heard all your life, you know, they were they're very moral, they followed the law very strictly, they maybe followed it too strictly. They they want they were so concerned to follow the law they would sit together and come up with detailed rules explaining how they were to follow the law, which was kind of adding to the law in a sense, but they saw it as clarifying the law. On the other hand, you had the Sadducees. And I'm going to give you uh, just a quick thing on the Sadducees that I've heard my whole life, that you've probably heard, but I find it helpful. The Sadducees were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's, that's kind of the core belief of the Sadducees. They believed when you were dead, you were gone. Uh, there was, that, that was it. There was no future resurrection coming. The Pharisees believed in a future resurrection. Christians later would come to believe in a future resurrection. They just believed that the resurrection started with Jesus, and the Pharisees denied that. Well, we see that with the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, the, the King of Kings, the Pharisee of Pharisees. But he found himself finally believing that Jesus had been truly raised from the dead. And that fundamentally changed his entire world. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who did not like each other, they loved to debate each other. They really did. It's, it's, it's hard to express to you how much they did like each other. Come up and they both don't like John. And they come to him, probably skeptically, and John was a prophet. And prophets like to do, I don't know if they like it or they're just called to it, but prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you see with John, uh, really like to call out people for, for being wrong. They really like to point out the darkness in the world and call people to change how they're doing things. And so when John sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees come up, he can say nothing other than, you brood of vipers. You den of snakes. I don't know if anyone's called you a snake before. If you hadn't, I'll indulge you later. But it's probably not very pleasant, I would imagine. And here he says, you brood of vipers. I mean, this is, you know, John, prophet of God. It's not very polite of John, is it? But he didn't have a lot of patience for these Pharisees and Sadducees. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Then he says this. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Perhaps a whole sermon could be preached just on that one verse. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We imagine repentance to be a one-time thing, a handshake deal. We've got Jesus, we can move on. We can go on to live however we want. But here John is saying, no. Repentance is a change of life. It's a change of heart, mind, soul, whatever word you want to attach to it. It's a change of your entire being such that your old self is dead and gone and has been replaced by a new self, a new creation. You are a different person. Therefore, your life should bear fruit. It should have things that have changed as a result of this repentance. He then goes on to tell them in verse 9, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, the Pharisees were trusting 
that they are a part of this tree, the tree of Abraham, that they are a part of this family tree. But the reality is your family tree doesn't mean a thing if it doesn't bear fruit. You may have the best family that's ever been in Alcoa. People might know your name. When your relatives pass away, the whole town comes, everybody you used to know. But it doesn't mean a thing if it doesn't bear fruit. You may look at your parents and your grandparents and say, oh, they were good, godly people. They loved the Lord. They, always, they didn't even play cards. That's how much they loved the Lord. You know, they, they wouldn't go out dancing on Saturday nights. That's how much they loved the Lord. They went to church every Sunday that, and every Wednesday and every Sunday evening. And sometimes they go Monday, Tuesday, or Friday. That's how much they love the Lord. That doesn't do you anything if you have not repented and if you are not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, I, you've, you've probably heard it said. I think it's well said. God doesn't have grandchildren. He has sons and he has daughters. That's it. You can't rely on your parents' faith. You can't rely on your parents' good works to be in God's kingdom. Instead, you yourself must repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance and live like a repentant person, a changed person, a new person. And not only that, but newsflash, you don't repent just once. This is a constant life thing. It's less that you are a person who has repented and more that you are a repenting person or a repentant person. That you repent daily, confessing your sins to the Lord, relying on him daily for his salvation. You know, the, 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 the thing that we need to make clear here as well is that repentance is not penance. If you, if you are familiar with other church traditions, possibly Roman Catholicism, I'm not throwing shade at them, but there was a history of interpreting repentance as penance. Actually, at first, as penitence, just feeling bad, feeling sorrowful. And eventually, it became penance, doing works in order to pay down this debt of feeling bad. That's not what repentance is at all. Really, it's a translation error, but we won't get into that. But the point is that repentance is a whole life change, such that your life is different, such that it's not just feeling bad. Listen, don't teach your kids or your grandkids or anyone else you meet that repentance is feeling bad. Does, will you feel bad if you need to repent? Perhaps. But you know what? Lots of people in this world need to repent who don't feel bad at all. How do I know that? Walk outside for a minute. Most people live in this world as if they need, there's nothing they need to repent of. They've been told their whole lives. The world is teaching uh, people daily. It teaches them all the time. It teaches them that they need to be true to themselves. That they don't need to let anyone restrict their freedom. That they need to live in a way that reflects who they truly are. And find themselves. All this stuff. Well, people, don't, people who, are, who are lost don't really feel a need to repent. They don't really feel sorry. This is why it's so hard to go into the world and tell everyone they're sinners without explaining anything else. Because they're going to think you're crazy. Why would they be sinners? They're not doing anything wrong. They haven't killed anybody. That's kind of it for most people. If, they, if they've not killed anyone, they really don't think there's a whole lot they need to be sorry for. Oh, sure, they may have lied and they know that they're taught not to lie. So maybe they'll apologize for that or maybe they'll hope no one finds out. I think you would all be shocked. I, I, I think church people in general, if you've been in church very long, would just be shocked at how sinful everybody is. And, and what's so concerning is y'all don't see how sinful y'all are. 
and I don't see how sinful I am. That's what's really concerning. is isn't just how blind we are to the sin of the world around us, but how blind we are to the sin within us. And so we can't just repent one time, as if that lets us come in the door and be all good. We have to repent our whole lives, continually trusting in the Lord. Now, Jesus, uh, John says that there is one mightier than him who is coming. Now, this one's different. He says, I baptize you with water, you know, for the forgiveness, of, for the cleansing, for the confessing of your sins, for repentance, that you may live a new life. Now, baptism was something that was done in Judaism, but not really to Jews, but to non-Jewish converts to Judaism. Rabbis would sometimes baptize people kind of as a ritual of bringing them in. And as far as we know, it was not uncommon for baptisms to occur. But here John is baptizing, not just converting non-Jews, but he's baptizing anyone who's going to come for repentance. But he says, one is coming, mightier than I, so much mightier, so much better than me, that I am unworthy to do the lowest thing, which is to carry his dirty sandals for him. I'm unworthy of that. He says, he's coming. But he will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. Now, you might think about the difference between water and fire for a moment. Well, let's say you have a piece of metal. You find some junk in your yard, as some of us do. And you go and you take it and you wash it off and you make it clean and it kind of shines a little bit. But, but it's still what it was before, this piece of metal. Whatever kind of metal it is, it is what it is. But if you were to take that into the right setting and heat that up and melt it down, you could actually separate any of the impurities from whatever metal that is. Say it's a, a piece of gold. It's not 24 karat or anything. It's a little bit more of a gold alloy. You can, you can use fire and purify that so that it's not just clean, but it's new. It's pure. It's different. He's saying that although I baptize you with water in a way that shows that you are clean, that you have confessed your sin, that you have repented, one is coming who will purify you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. One is coming who his baptism will fundamentally change who you are. Now, that's a very scary thing for people. I don't know about you, but at no point in my life have I really wanted to be a fundamentally different person. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you know, when I was young, I wanted to look prettier, I wanted to act a little nicer, I wanted to be better at doing, sure, whatever. But you don't want to fundamentally be a different person. I mean, that's a whole step removed, right? But here we are being told in the preaching of God's word that what you need is to be changed, to be made different. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to stop being John or George or Gary or whatever your name is, but it means that you're going to cease to be a sinner in the way you once were. Instead, you will be dead to your sin and you will be alive to Christ and you will be his. And so we need this purifying baptism. Now, this all raises the question in my mind, and it certainly did, it certainly did in the mind of John, when Jesus comes and he wants to be baptized by John, why? If you've been in church for very long, you know the good Sunday school answer is Jesus. And so if I asked you the question, who is the only human being who never sinned? You would say, Jesus. Who is the only human being who never needed to repent of anything? Jesus. 
So why is Jesus coming to John and saying, you're baptizing for repentance, but I want to be baptized? When John hears that Jesus wants to be baptized, he says in verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to be baptized by John so that he could fulfill all righteousness. Part of this is because Jesus was obedient in his life. Obedient to God the Father to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross. And so in being obedient to God, he goes through baptism, obeying his Father. This is something he's supposed to do. But he's also fulfilling his role as the representative of Israel, as the Messiah of Israel. Now, you know the story. Last week we talked about how Jesus came out of Egypt. It was like he was going through an exodus, like we see in the Old Testament. Well, here we see that Jesus is going through the waters. You may know the Exodus story. There is the Passover meal. There is a sacrificed lamb. The firstborn sons in Egypt were killed, except for the ones that had the blood covering the doorpost. And then what happened? They left. Pharaoh changed his mind chased after them, and where did they end up? They ended up at the edge of a sea. And you'd think there was no place for them to go. But God, working through Moses, working through some stick that Moses held in the air, separates the waters and allows them to go through the waters to safety. And then as they go through, Pharaoh and his Soldiers go through, and the waters swallow them up. And so, Jesus, coming out of Egypt, 30 years later, about to begin his ministry, what does he do? He begins by going through the waters. That he might, like Israel, declare the saving victory of God that he might in his own life declare the deliverance that God is bringing. And he goes through this that he might fulfill all righteousness, that he might be true Israel. So he did it to obey God fully. He did it to live out the life of Israel fully. But he also does it to prepare the way for Christian baptism. That when we are baptized, we are not just baptized into some water, we are baptized into Christ. We are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that what God has brought in our own hearts might be shown to a world in need of him, to a church that is bringing them along. So in baptism... We receive the gift of union with Christ. Now, to be clear, it's not to say that we didn't already have that gift. But there is something in that, to use a more general non-Christian term, there's something in this religious rite 
or, or boundary marker in which we are brought into the family in a public way, if that makes sense. But I think in order to better understand that, we have to move on to see the other thing that Jesus' baptism does, which is Jesus was baptized to reveal the fullness of God. Not only was he baptized to fulfill all righteousness, but he was baptized to reveal the fullness of God. Let's look in verse 13, sorry, in verse 16 at what happens at Jesus' baptism. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Now, to be clear, where it says the heavens were opened to him, this is not something that happens in the Bible very often, okay? So we ought to pay attention. The heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we see the heavens were opened, and now the Spirit of God descends like a dove. Now, lest we become confused and think this is some moment in which the Spirit of God is turning Jesus into a God or in some way the Spirit of God is coming for the first time to, to act upon Jesus. No, this is a special moment in which God is revealing himself to Jesus, revealing himself to the people around Jesus, and showing that he is going to be specially, uh, that God is going to work with his Spirit in Jesus throughout his ministry. We, we know that Jesus isn't receiving the Spirit for the first time. How do we know that? Well, this isn't the first time the Spirit has worked in Jesus' life. If you remember, he was born of a virgin. It was the Spirit of God that conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary. Already the Spirit has acted upon Jesus. This situation isn't unique in that sense. Nor is it surprising. In the Gospel of Luke, we see that when Mary comes to her uh, relative Elizabeth, who is the mother of John, it says that John, filled with the Holy Spirit in her womb, jumps in the presence of Jesus. So if John the Baptist already has the Spirit filling him in the womb of his mother, it would be shocking to think that that wasn't already true of Jesus Christ. And so we have here, not the Spirit coming to dwell in him for the first time, or the Spirit of God coming to make him something that he's not. Instead, he has already been the eternal son, but the Spirit comes to identify him as such and to demonstrate that and to kind of anoint him and to help him begin his ministry in this world, to work through him. And, and Jesus is going to do a lot of stuff. You can go through the Gospels and see this. By the power of the Spirit. And so the Spirit is working with Christ. This is because when God works, all three persons of God work. There is only one God. But there are these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And where the Son is, the Father and the Spirit are not... It's not that they're even far behind. It's that they are present there in some sense too. Now clearly distinct, they're not identical, but all working together. Now, I'm going to make a comment that I don't think changes my interpretation a whole lot, but, but it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, so if y'all will all bear with me. Let's read this, just the plain English for a moment. The Spirit of God descending like a dove. Okay, notice what I did there. Descending like a dove. It doesn't say descended in the form of a dove. 
descended in some avatar of a dove. It says descending like a dove. This is how, in, in the Greek it bears it out the same way. This is how similes work, okay? The like goes with the descending. So it's not saying that the spirit was in the form of a dove, that he appeared as a dove, but instead that his descent was like that of a dove's descent. Now with that being said, whether the spirit appeared as a dove or not, I, I don't know. I'm just telling you that the simile isn't bearing that out. It's that it's the descent is like a dove. And I'm going to leave it there, and you can all come bother me later about the fact that you're saying, no, 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 I've seen, I've seen doves on pictures everywhere. There's always Jesus in the water, and there's a dove above him, and then there's like light in the sky breaking through. That's the Trinity. Okay, no, that's a picture that you saw, okay? So anyway, you can come bother me about that later. I'm open to criticism on this, but uh, just had to get that out there before we continue. Because it is a, a slight pet peeve of mine. I'm a little bothered by it. Anyway, so the, this, the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove and comes to rest on him. We see that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. In Isaiah 42, it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is the fulfillment of this in which the Spirit of God comes to dwell with Christ, comes to fill him and empower him for his ministry, and comes to demonstrate, to be a witness. In the Scripture, a person is, a person's testimony is not to be believed except with two witnesses. And here we have in Jesus two witnesses. We have the Spirit of God descending upon him, and we also have the voice from heaven. Now the voice from heaven says this, this, referring to Jesus, is my beloved Son. Now if we're just to take this strictly for a moment, who has sons? Fathers. I know, this is hard stuff. But fathers. We have God the Father being the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. This is part of the amazingness of Jesus' baptism. It's not just to fulfill our righteousness. It's not just so that Jesus will be obedient. It's not just so that his life will mirror the life of Israel. It's not just so that you and I can be in union with Christ. It's so that we can see that Jesus isn't some demigod. He's not the one God, one person God in flesh. No, he is one person of the full Godhead. But the other two are completely in sync with the work that he is doing. It says in the scripture that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. It would be true to say that Jesus is God without equivocation. He's not one third of God, to be clear. He is the fullness of God. He's not one part of a three part God. He is the fullness of God. He is the one God. But that one God exists in three persons Father, we see the voice from heaven. Son, we see Jesus being baptized. And Spirit, we see the Spirit of God descending upon him 
and coming to rest on him. In this we see the God of the gospel. We get so caught up in the gospel, not specifically just part of the, we get caught up in the one part of the gospel that changes our lives, that we are justified before God, that we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ, and we get so caught up in that we lose that at the end of the day, the gospel isn't for us. The gospel is for God, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would bring a people to himself, that he would adopt from many people sons and daughters for himself. The reality is God is the gospel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we can't just simply say, oh, well, that Trinity stuff is for smart people. That Trinity stuff is for like those people who work at universities or monasteries who go and they just sit all day and talk about that. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm a simple person. Yeah, sure, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I like to sing it in the songs. Holy, holy, holy. Yeah. But too hard for me. Just move on. Listen, if you don't know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you don't know God. It's as simple as that. Now, that doesn't mean you understand everything. Listen, you could read this whole book backwards and forwards and still not understand everything that it reveals. But if you are to say, I don't need to be bothered by this Trinity stuff, well, okay, don't be bothered by God then. Because that's who God is. And he is none other. So we see that in the baptism of Jesus, the fullness of God is revealed. The fullness of God in Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, but also the fullness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now what does this mean for us? Really, what does this mean? It's a good story. It's entertaining maybe. You got crazy preacher in the wilderness. Listen, if, if that was the end of the story, we could just go to Oklahoma. I got plenty of those guys, okay? Now, there's a crazy guy in the wilderness, guy getting baptized in a river. Also, you can find plenty of that around here, too. But what's different about this story is that the one being baptized is Jesus Christ. And in his baptism, all righteousness is fulfilled. And in his baptism, the fullness of God is revealed. Now, if you have been baptized before, I want to encourage you to embrace your identity as a child of God. There is a sense in which how the Father says in the baptism of Jesus, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. There is a sense in which in your baptism, God the Father says, this is my Son or my daughter with whom I am well pleased. Not because you're so good or so special, but because you have been buried with Christ in baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life. You have, been, you have died to your sin and been raised to new life in Christ Jesus, such that it is not your righteousness, but it is his righteousness that fundamentally changes you. So that you can watch a baptism, and you can think back to your own, and you can say, I am a son of God. I'm a daughter of God, and he is pleased with me because of his son's work on my behalf. You know, a lot of people uh, sometimes, they think about all the, the, the technicality, you know, old churches and all their paperwork and their business and all this stuff. They, you know what's really neat that I have that 
no one my age typically has. If I go in my office right now, I can show you a certificate I have from my first communion. I can show you a certificate I have of my first bab- from my ba- not my first baptism, my only baptism. I can show you a certificate I have of my membership to the church, which was the same date as my baptism. I can even show you a certificate of my membership in the next church when we had to move to a different church. I don't have to question whether I was baptized in the name of the Trinity. I've got the paperwork. Now, with that being said, I don't rely on any paperwork. But what I can rely on is the fact that in my baptism, I was baptized with Christ. And he says of me, this is my son with whom I am well pleased because in it I am united to Christ. If you have not been baptized, I want to encourage you to seek it out. You may not be ready for it. I don't know. But you're never going to know if you don't ask. If you don't say, tell me about this. That's actually part of the reason that I even realized I was truly a Christian. It's because I knew someone getting baptized and I started asking questions about it. That's what led me to baptism. That's what led me to say, okay, well, I'm a Christian. I get that. If you have never repented, then John's preaching couldn't be clearer for you. Repent. Because if you don't, it says, he says in verse 11, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. If you have never repented, you are like the chaff that is in danger of being burned. But if you repent, you will be the wheat that's put into the barn, safe and secure for God's purposes. And if you have repented before, but have not been bearing fruit, maybe you're a true Christian, but you ain't been living like it, as some would say, you also need to repent to say, I've not been living according to the baptism for which I received. I've not been living according to the profession of faith that I once made. I've not been living according to the desires of God. And so the call for us this morning, no matter who you are, there's one of two calls. Repent, or be baptized, or both. Let's pray.